0: Uh, Genesis 22, verses 1 to 18. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar. On top of the wood, then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed, because you have obeyed me. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning everyone. It's very nice to see you, very nice to be with you at St Stephen. I think this is is my first time since we finished. I feel like it is and I'm just really sorry to see standards have slipped. I think the last time I preached here... Jarwin Red. Is that true? I think it's true. And Jarwin, you were dressed for the occasion last time. (laughs) Some of you won't won't have been here, but when Jarwin Red, the last time I preached, he uh, he took off his top just before and said, I'm wearing this for JB and it was an Auckland Blues top that he was wearing underneath. (laughs) Hasn't done that anymore. Plus, standards of interns. I remember the good days when... Sorry. Happy Father's Day. It's very nice to be with you on Father's Day. My dad's here, I think. Happy Father's Day. Where's Wally? There he is. Happy Father's Day. And an encouragement to all the fathers. It's a tough job being a father. If you're a father, have the privilege of that. Then do take it seriously. And um, we heard from Ryan and Mark before. It was lovely to hear from them. I'm told that Ryan's one of a number of new fathers who are going to be in the next few months. I'd encourage you, that that wonderful role and privilege of being a father doesn't last forever. And uh, we were, Jamie and I were just talking about it the other day, so Jesse, our son and Miriam and now, they're going to have their own babies. Our, one of our daughters just turned 20. The other one is nearly last year at high school. You don't have that period when you're fathers, while they're at home, for too long. So um, for those who are about to become fathers... Uh, take that responsibility while you've got it and uh, grab it and be a wonderful father in the Lord to the children that the Lord blesses you with. And um, I've loved that period of time. It's been a great kind of, to have the children in the home. Two out of three is not bad. We've really enjoyed two of them. Uh, I'm going to pray before I keep... (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for... uh, The chance to be together this morning and to think on this, I think, quite an odd passage in your word and quite a confronting one in different ways. And Lord, as we we gather this morning, I'm very aware that uh, all of us will be at different places in our lives. For some, today's a celebration and there's lots of things going on that we rejoice in and give thanks for. Uh, For some, we're finding life particularly difficult. And there are some specific trials that we're going through. I pray this morning as we, we look at this incident that happened so many years ago in a very different place, in a very different time, that you would work within us by your spirit so that whatever stage and phase we're in at the moment, you would speak to us. Give us a closer uh, and deeper understanding of who you are so that whatever our circumstances, we may love you more, know you more, and know that, we're, that you're holding on to us all the more. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know how you felt as Jarwin read that out, that passage, but I can tell you that for me, this is one of the passages in the scriptures that I always feel a level of discomfort with. There's something about it that that doesn't sit right with me one of my subjects at school, when I was in year 13, last year at school, was classical studies. And I did classics because I was very interested in Greek mythology. I used to like the stories of it. I remember reading the Iliad and the Odyssey. I used to read the Roman ones too, like the Aeneid. And I was um, delighted and entertained by the tales of Hercules and Perseus. They They were great stories. But I remember being struck even more by the portrayal of the gods in Greek mythology. It interested me even as a child. You've got Zeus, the father of the Greek gods. You've got Hera, the queen of the gods. And then you've got the others, Poseidon in the water, uh, Hades by the gates of hell, Aphrodite, the goddess of love, Ares, the god of war, and more and more. But what struck me was their fickleness. I think the word that's often used about them is capricious. Uh, And that's a good adjective, adjective to describe them. They were impulsive and not in a good way. When you read the stories of these Greek gods, they had lots of illegitimate children, sometimes illegitimate children with human beings. They were very fallible. They made mistakes. They got involved in the affairs of human beings for their own gain. gain, And more than that, they sometimes seemed to play with humans just for their own amusement. In short, they provided very entertaining stories, and I used to like reading about them. But these were not the kind of gods in any way that engendered trust. These were not the kind of gods that you thought were trustworthy, that you would want to follow. And yet when you come to a passage of scripture like Genesis chapter 22, you can be tempted to think, well, is that what our God's like? Because I've always thought he was someone to trust and he is someone to follow. And yet, is he acting in a a way like the Greek gods here in in Genesis chapter 22? Have a look at verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. And then we see what the test is. He tells him to kill his son, to sacrifice him as a burnt offering. Why would he do that? What's going on with that? And it's a little more confronting when you know that during that time period there was other religions going on, Moloch, and they used to do child sacrifices and this, our God, the God of Abraham, was against that. So, so what's going on here? I don't know about you, but this is a passage which has always made me feel uncomfortable when I get to it. You've got God acting in a way that you wouldn't expect, and which quite frankly doesn't seem to put him in a very good light at first. And then you've got Abraham. And Abraham seems to be willing to sacrifice his son. And as a father, and on Father's Day, I find that almost impossible to comprehend. So it's a a disturbing passage, I think, in some ways, Genesis 22. How could God ask this from someone, and how could Abraham even consider it? Do we follow a God who just plays games with people? Was he just toying with Abraham here, putting him through this for his own pleasure, a bit like we play with a kitten with a, a, a bit of string? Well, let's have a closer look at chapter 22 and see what we get out of it. Verse 1 is certainly key. We need to understand what it means that sometime later God tested Abraham. This lays the platform, I think, for everything else that happens. How does he test him? As I said, rest of verse 1. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied, God said, take your son, your your only son Isaac whom you love and go to the region of Moriah sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I'll tell you about so what does it mean that God was testing Abraham it's very important to get this right because otherwise our thinking will be wrong about the whole chapter And, as I said before, I I think we we will slip into believing that God's playing games with Abraham. I think James chapter 1 is one of the places to go to when you're trying to understand what it means that God tested Abraham. Let me read you a couple of... If you've got a Bible, turn to James 1 just for a moment. But if you haven't, just listen to it. James chapter 1 verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now read that again because it's very important. It doesn't say here that God puts the tests on people, but it's or the trials on people, but it says that when you face them, when testing of your faith happens, good can come from it. Consider it pure joys, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And then in James chapter 1, he actually goes on to talk about tempting, not testing, but tempting. And he says that tempting is different. Chapter 1, verse 13, when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he's dragged away and enticed. Do you see there's a significant difference between tempting and testing? Tempting is done with the desire of destroying faith for negative purposes and God does not do that. Testing, James tells us, is done with the purpose of growing our faith so that we may trust him more and lean on him more fully so that our faith may mature and grow to completeness. Well, with that in mind, as we turn back to Genesis 22, that's what's going on here. Abraham is being tested. That means God's not playing a game with Abraham. Everything that's going on is for Abraham's good. It's to build, to strengthen, to develop, and to grow Abraham's faith. But you can still ask, but why in this way? And I think that's a fair question. Sure, I can accept that God wants to strengthen our faith, but why test him in this way? And this is a specific test from God. Is God likely to test us in similar ways? Well I feel very confident to say No, I don't think so You don't see God acting this way anywhere else in the scriptures And we need to be careful when we talk about God testing us Not every difficult situation that you and I face Is God testing us Sometimes it's just life in this fallen world God may use that to strengthen us But it's not necessarily at his instigation And we need to be careful of thinking about it in that way I sometimes worry that we're too quick To use the language of God's testing me I think it's better not to think about about where it's coming from if you're going through a hard time. Just try and be godly and uh, faithful in all situations. Now, the reason I think God does such a drastic thing here is, and we don't see him do it anywhere else, and I don't think we'll be asked today is, this is the area that was Abraham's Achilles heel. Notice I've kept the... Greek mythology theme going you're welcome Uh, this has been the problem for Abraham ever since he's had his dealings with God the lack of faith in God's promise to give him a son has been the main source of problems for Abraham he's kept not believing in this promise this has been the area where he's fallen down again and again and again and so this is the area he's tested in other words, this is a very one off, very specific test. Abraham is put in a situation to trust God in the very area that God has promised him the most and where Abraham's faith has been lacking the most. One other thing to notice from this, uh, these early couple of verses is where this is to take place. Verse 2, we're told it's the area of Moriah on a mountain. Uh, The name Moriah, the place of Moriah, is only mentioned one other time, I think, in the uh, scriptures. It's in the book of 2 Chronicles, and it's the place where Solomon constructs the temple. So the place where Abraham is to sacrifice his son is the place where years later all the sacrifices to God would be made in the temple. Well then, let's carry on reading in Genesis 22 and see how things progress. The next morning, Abraham heads off with a donkey, two servants, his son Isaac, and some wood. We don't know how old Isaac is at this stage, because verse 1 just says sometime later, but the way Isaac speaks in verse 7, and the way it's Isaac who's carrying the wood, and the wood was probably the most heavy of all the items that needed to be carry, uh, taken, makes it seem that he's probably a young teenager at this point. Verse 4 tells us the journey took them till the third day, which backs up the theory about the temple, because the journey from Beersheba, where Abraham was, to Jerusalem is 70 K, is a two or three day walk. And Abraham gets the servants and the donkeys uh, when they arrive at the place, gets the servants and the donkeys to stay behind while he and Isaac set off the rest of the way alone. And I hope you can feel that as the story's told, we're supposed to feel the tension of it. It's written deliberately. The whole way it's structured and uh, told, I think, heightens the tension and we're supposed to feel it. And so Isaac is carrying the wood while his father carries the fire and the knife. And as they walk, suddenly this question comes. Verse 7, Father, yes my son, the fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Just as he thought Abraham might not be able to feel any worse, he gets that question. But Abraham gives an answer which I'm sure was better than he knew. Verse 8, Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And we'll think a little bit more about that because I think there's some hidden depth to that uh, in a few moments. The two go on and Abraham, we're told, arranges the altar and the wood and the tension grows. And although Isaac's not mentioned in what happens next, I don't think it's reading too much into it to say he must have trusted either God or his father or more likely both because Abraham is an old man at this stage and presumably Isaac, therefore, could either have overpowered his father or at least outrun him at any stage and yet we're not told of any argument or struggle. And so presumably Isaac just yielded himself, allowing himself to be bound and laid upon the altar. Then Abraham reaches out his hand and he takes the knife. And I think if this was a movie, this is the moment it goes into slow motion as you see him grab the knife and wonder what's going to happen. And then at the last possible moment, we're told, the angel of the Lord called out to him. Abraham, Abraham, even the double use of the name illustrates the urgency of the situation and adds to the tension. In verse 12, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. And Abraham, we're told, looks up. He finds a ram caught in a thicket. And the ram is sacrificed instead of Isaac. And then the Lord, in the rest of chapter 22, restates his promises to Abraham. He talks about the numerous descendants, the land, and through Abraham's offspring, all nations on earth being blessed. Uh, just on the offspring blessing, if you've got a Bible there and you look at verse 18, you'll see, in the, you'll see that it's footnoted, and you'll see at the footnote at the bottom of your page that the literal word there for offspring is seed. It's through the seed of Abraham that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Why is that important? Because by the time you get to Galatians, we're told that the seed of Abraham is not the Israel as a whole it's Jesus Jesus is the way that all the nations will be blessed so that's the passage that's our story Genesis 22 two things I want us to notice this morning I want us to notice Abraham's response and God's provision firstly Abraham's response when you read through Genesis you see Abraham stumble quite a few times If you just read the New Testament and saw that he's described as the man of faith, you might think that Abraham's wonderful. If you read through Genesis and read about Abraham, you will not think he's wonderful because he mucks up in quite a few places. This is not a man who's always the paragon of faithfulness. But he is here. He's incredible here. Two things to observe in his response, Abraham. One is his obedience. It is total and it is immediate as soon as god instructs him to do this thing which must have blown his mind he does it verse three early the next morning he starts doing it there's no excuses given there's no mistakes made there's no delay kind of hinted at he obeys he couldn't have fully understood what god wanted of him here This would not have been his preference, but he obeys God immediately and completely. It's a great response. This has not always been Abraham's go-to response, but it is here. So his first response is obedience. But But the other part of his response that's so good and I want us to notice is he trusts. He trusts. See, at this point, I'm still thinking, Abraham, how could you agree to do this? Why would you be obedient on this? But it's because he trusts God completely. Now, I don't think the word trust is there in Genesis 22. I don't think the word faith is there in in Genesis 22. So let me prove to you that he trusts. Have a look at verse 5. And do you see what's interesting in verse 5? Just as he and Isaac are about to go off by themselves to do the sacrifice, we read verse 5. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham is absolutely certain two people will be leaving and two people will be returning. But even more than that, God explains this incident to us even more when we get to the New Testament. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 11, when it gives that roll call of the people of faith, it talks about Abraham. And it talks not just about Abraham generally, but Abraham specifically in this instance. Listen to these words from Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who'd received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. And then it says Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. That's what Hebrews 11 says. Do you see what it says? It's very important. Abraham knew that God had promised it was through Isaac that all the promises of God would be fulfilled. It was through Isaac that the promise of descendants would come. And therefore, he totally trusted God. He knew that God would not break that promise. He knew that Isaac must live on. And so he assumed that if he was to kill him, God would raise him from the dead. That's total trust. This is before the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the faith of Abraham here? Here he trusts God completely. He knew and believed what God had promised him, and he lived in the light of it. I said before, you often see the frailties and the failures of Abraham in Genesis, but here he's wonderful. Complete obedience, total trust. And here's the model for The way every follower of of God should live. This is the model. Trust and obey, for there's no other way. We just sang it. If you're in the midst of trying times at the moment, and you don't know why, trust Him and obey Him. If things are going in your life from worse to worse right at the moment, trust Him and keep obeying Him. If it feels like your prayers aren't being answered at the moment, what's my advice to you? Trust him and keep obeying him. If it seems like surely God wouldn't allow this and I don't understand what God's doing in this, trust him and obey him. The truth is we will never fully understand the ways of God, I don't think, in this life. Uh, As the old saying goes, he works in mysterious ways i can tell you and assure you he's told us enough and shown us enough that we can trust him and keep obeying him even in the midst of the most trying times and we see that in the second point that's the first one abraham's response the second one builds on it and is the foundation for it the provision of god This is a very important passage in the Bible because uh, if you're reading from Genesis 1 right through, this is the first time in a major way a concept that's going to be of central significance in the rest of the scriptures is shown. And the concept is substitution. God provides a sacrifice, the ram, in the place of Isaac. This happens here for the first time, really, in the scriptures, and it goes on to be very significant in all God's dealings with people in the rest of the years. Do you see the way it's worded in verse 13? He went over, that's Abraham, and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Instead of, as a substitute, in the place of. And this becomes the principle of the sacrificial system of Israel, where animal sacrifices are offered in the place of the people. And, of course, ultimately... This is what we will see in the Lord Jesus Christ who takes our place on the cross as he suffers in our stead what we deserve instead of us as our substitute. Theologians and theology put put it as uh, substitutionary atonement. That's the technical theological phrase and it sounds very uh, kind of tricky and important and it is important but it's not as complicated as it sounds. Jesus dies in my place, substitutionary atonement. Jesus uh, suffers instead of you, substitutionary atonement. That's the great news of the Christian message. That's the gospel. One of the things that human beings struggle with most is, how can I make up for the wrong I've done? Some of us think we never can. The good news of the gospel is you don't have to. Jesus stands in your place. He takes what you and I deserve. It doesn't matter what you and I have done. It doesn't matter what we've thought. It doesn't matter the very worst things that we've done, the very worst hurts that we've caused others. It doesn't matter the way we've let people down. All our sin is taken by Jesus, and he takes what it deserves as our substitute. That's why he says, come to me all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest because we don't have to carry that burden with us anymore. He's taken it off us because he's taken it in our place as our substitute. If you don't follow Jesus, if you're here this morning and you don't follow Jesus, very glad that you're here, but you're left with that burden because someone has to carry it. Either you carry it or Jesus carries it as your substitute. And one day, we will face the Lord and we will either be carrying it or we will have allowed Jesus to take it for us. In Jesus, the God who provided a ram for Abraham and Isaac provides for us too. In Jesus. And that's why the answer to the question that Abraham gave to his son Isaac was so good in verse 8. Do you remember Isaac asked where the lamb was for the sacrifice? And Abraham said, What? God will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. But then what turned up as a substitute? Not a lamb, it was a ram. Did he get it wrong? No. It's a sheep. It's kind of in the right ballpark. But Abraham's dead right because he's not just talking about a ram. He's pointing forward to the one who would one day come as the great substitute. He was pointing forward to the one who, when John the Baptist first saw our Lord, he said, Behold the... Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God did provide the lamb who probably only a few miles from that very place of Isaac. He also willingly yielded himself to the cross as our substitute. And his body and blood were given for us. And as soon as you've seen that, it changes the perspective on Genesis 22. Changes it completely. Because the incredible thing about this passage is that is, when you're first reading it, it kind of gives you bad feelings towards God and you feel sorry for Abraham and Isaac. And, but Abraham and Isaac didn't have to go through it. In the end, they were spared. But they were only spared because, before, because, years later, God the Father and God the Son worked together and they went through what Abraham and Isaac were spared of here. They did it, and they did it, friends, so that you and I might be forgiven. You and I might be washed clean. That the punishment we deserve might be taken by the substitute, by God the Son himself. We're supposed to be, as people who read Genesis 22, post-cross, we're supposed to be looking at Jesus when we read this chapter. I don't know if you noticed that three times Isaac's described as his son, his only son. It's a weird phrase, isn't it? Not really, not if you're pointing to Jesus. Verse 2, verse 12, verse 16. And verse 2, when he's first described, it's your son, your only son, whom you love. That's the description of Jesus. What Abraham and Isaac were spared, God as father and son went through for us so that we could have a substitute. And therefore... Rather than this passage being one which makes us wonder and worry, is our God like the Greek gods playing games and toying and out for self-fulfillment and personal enjoyment? This is the exact opposite. This is a passage which shows our God's deep love for us. And the fact that he doesn't muck around at all, he goes to extraordinary lengths to make sure that you and I are forgiven, adopted as children, and everything's done for us in the substitute of the Lord Jesus Christ, his son, his only son, whom he loved. And therefore, to trust and obey is not just our duty, it's our privilege, because that's the kind of God we have. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the chance to think on a a passage which is so kind of foreign to us in so many ways. I don't think any of us will ever go through a situation like that. And yet, as soon as we start thinking on it, we see what it teaches us about you. We see what it teaches us about the Lamb of God. And we see how precious we are to you. And we pray, Lord, that knowing the lengths that you've gone to for us, would help strengthen and fortify us so that even in the most difficult of circumstances, we might trust and obey, even if we don't understand. Father, please strengthen us by your spirit this morning, we ask. For we ask it in the name of our substitute, the Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. Amen.
0: the formal part of our service this morning we're going to sing again but first hear these words from